Greetings, everyone. This is Eric Stewart from Fishing Fanatics. Today, I have an awesome podcast guest, George Newberger. He is formerly known as Custom Rods by Newberger, and George been, has been building rods since 1975, which sounds absolutely insane, but he's spent several years building his rods. He also now he does different things with pens too, building them, pen tuning, and all that different stuff. And now his business is probably named Works of Art. So how are you doing, George? I'm doing great. Yourself? I'm doing great. And it's great to have you on here since the first time I met you at the Great American Outdoor Show. And then the second time I met you, where I actually bought another pen from you at the uh, Philadelphia Fishing Show. And it's great to just kind of have this time to sit down and talk about what you've been doing uh, for the past many years here. No problem at all. We'll jump We'll jump right into it. The first question I have to ask you Um Take us all the way back to 1975 when you first got started making your custom rods, starting up your business here. Um, how did that kind of story come about, and how did you start doing that? Well, I was working for an engineering firm, and I was laid off. I was climbing the walls. I hate sitting at home doing absolutely nothing. And believe it or not, I picked up one of Dale Clemens' books on fiberglass rod making and it started from there i went on my uncle somebody stole my rod and said would you make me a rod and i said sure and i asked my wife at the time what should i charge him and she said charge a dollar for every time you say ah shit because that means you made a mistake and you have to start over again. So my first rod, I charged $35 labor. So thank God I don't go by that theory anymore. <laughs> so you had uh, you had 35s all, all made. All made, I messed up in that first kind of take. Is that Rod? Oh, yeah, and you got to start all over and do it again. <laughs> So thank God I'm not I'm not at that number now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I've seen some of your uh, your rods at the different shows, and it is kind of amazing what you're able to do with a rod, adding in different um, layers to it, different kind of textures to it. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about the custom rods you make, um, and we'll kind of get into like the different like you know fly fishing and spinning rods and bait casting, but like the overall process of building a rod. And like what you go about and how you make it and what kind of materials you use to make. So it's, it's used too infrequently and in the wrong sense. When I make a custom rod, the customer's required to fill out a two page questionnaire. So you're truly fitted for the rod. You don't need the bling. If you want the bling, I can provide it to you. But it's critical that I match up the rod to all the equipment you're using, including your physical characteristics, such as hand size and what really you're using, how many ounces you're casting, what pound test line each. Even the manufacturer line's going to change. So I'm pretty much a purist. When I sign my and I say custom made for, that means that the customer actually 
took the time to do the two-page questionnaire. If you buy one right off the rack, you'll see my signature basically say handcrafted by, which is different than custom made. Um, any materials that you like, uh, I, I can go the standard cork. I can do EVA grips. I can do epoxy grips. I can do inlays in epoxy. I also do stabilized wood. So that's where you go through a a six-week process to dye and stabilize wood before you even include it in a fishing rod or pen. Tell me a little bit about that process of how you had to stabilize wood for kind of six weeks. Does it like water, like waterproof it kind of, or what does that look like? What you're doing when you stabilize wood is, number one, you're injecting epoxy. Before you can even inject an epoxy into the wood, you remove all moisture. So a lot of times I'll buy a burr wood, which looks like a wood growing on the side of a tree. And I'll buy that whole piece and cut it into slabs. Each slab is weighed and then put in an electric smoker at 220 degrees. Every eight hours, I'll reweigh the wood. And it will lose temperature because at 220 water turns to steam. I'll continue this process every eight hours until there is no more weight loss. When there's no more weight loss, that means I got rid of all the moisture. I'll take the slab out and I'll put it in a seal bag and seal it to, till it cools down. The reason for the vacuum seal bag don't absorb any humidity from the air. When the wood is cooled down, I will mix up an epoxy, which is basically called cactus juice. And you can add a dye to the epoxy to color it. I'll submerge this and weigh it down with sinkers so it's completely covered. It goes in a vacuum chamber. Under a vacuum, you'll see air bubbles come out of the wood. It might take two weeks to suck all the air out of all the crevices in the wood. When you stop seeing air bubbles, now the wood's ready to suck in the epoxy where the air was. But because the epoxy is thicker, you have to help it along. So I keep it submerged, and now like pressure pot at 60 PSI. Now you're actually injecting the epoxy into the wood. But because it's thicker than air, it needs help. So it's, it stays under pressure, but you double the time. So if it took two weeks to get the air out, this soaks under pressure for four weeks. At the end of the four weeks, this epoxy doesn't cure with time. It cures with heat. So it has to go back into the electric smoker to cure the epoxy. Um, I've got a rod behind me, uh, which is dyed maple, big leaf maple. Okay. Um, after the handle is turned on a lathe, it's... So this way, when you're fishing with it, there won't be any moisture accepted into the wood. It's completely impregnated at this point. So you don't have to worry about warpage. 
yeah, I mean, that whole process, it's funny because, because we, well, real quick, we started with your first rod you built, which was $35. And you mentioned, thank God I don't charge those prices anymore. And then we go into the process about how it takes six weeks to basically cure the wood and make sure it's all ready to go. So how long does it normally take for either a handcrafted rod or a custom rod to be built? I'm not, um, if I don't count stabilization time, meaning I'll take pieces of wood and stabilize them while I'm working on another fishing rod. Uh, I did one rod that I had at the show, Thin Blue Line, which was the American flag woven in thread. It was a split grip. So it had Thin Blue Line woven between the split grip and also at the butt wrap. And I timed myself on that, and I don't like to time myself. I definitely don't charge by the hour. In that rod, I had 33 hours just in weaving thread underneath a magnifying glass. So... It depends what level you want to take it to. I like to do stuff that's unique and basically can't be duplicated. Um, to give you an idea, some of my pens I've even woven thin blue line on. And I have a sign up when I do booths, and I basically say, if you can find anybody that can duplicate this pen set, I'll give you mine free. So... I like to throw down the gauntlet a lot. There's a lot of rock makers out there that will work. So I'm not saying I'm the best in the business, but I try to make it as unique as possible. Yeah, that's literally hit the nail on the head there. Like my next thing I was going to bring up is, as we kind of mentioned before I'm um, talking here on the phone the other day, is I'm super into swim baits and the Japan domestic market. And even guys in their uh, garage that are building their own swim baits by hand. And, you know, one's not going to look the same as the other, right? There's going to be some differences in it, but it's a usable, they call it a usable piece of art. And I think that's why when I went to your booth for the first time, I was so drawn in by it because I was like, oh, this is kind of like the swim bait industry as a whole, just in rods. Because it really is like a usable piece of art. Like people can go out and use it, but it's also something really cool to be like, yeah, this guy George made this rod and it's one of a kind. No one else is going to have a rod like this. Well, I can duplicate him too. Behind me up on the wall is eight matching trolling rods that are going to Lake Ontario as soon as I can get driving time to get up there and deliver them. Um, so I can make matching sets and duplicate it. And that's tough in itself. It's taking it to the next level because not only are you making something, but now you got to duplicate it eight times. Um, and it can be done. It can be done. How much, uh, how much trial and error kind of went into building a rod? Like I could imagine, like I started making my own swim baits, just kind of messing around with it. And I probably ruined 30 swim baits before I found one that actually like swam right? Like I can imagine. All I can say is there's literally hundreds of hours of failure, especially when you're playing with different epoxies or acrylics, and then you're trying to inlay material inside of it. Um, 
you're going to have failures, but you have to document each failure. So when you do have success, you can end up repeating it on a natural basis. Um, one of the things I'm actually prototyping now is a 3D embedment image of fish inside of an acrylic handle. Um, and that's going to be a nightmare. I'm still working on it. Um, like I said, plenty of failures, not until I can play them and then duplicate them. Am I going to advertise it? So, uh, but you're constantly moving along, trying different items. I've done pine cones and I have epoxy. I've done aluminum honeycomb. Um, I've done rattlesnake skaters, aluminum honeycomb inside of epoxy. And then you also have a rattlesnake skin inlaid on the fishing rod. So you're constantly playing with different tech, different acrylics, different even colors, how the acrylic or the epoxy is going to try and come out properly. So I lost count on failures. Um, but I can duplicate my successes. Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's actually funny you brought up the uh, snakeskin because I'm actually one of my everyday writers here is one of your pens. The snakeskin <laughs> on it that I got. I got one around too. Yeah, I've got deer antler. I just finished up at the show in Harrisburg a deer antler um, spinning rod, three piece ultralight spinning rod. And that was a nightmare trying to find a straight piece of deer antler that you could drill a hole through and then turn a handle out of it. Um, I say I perfected it, but I want to go with a longer grip, which is a nightmare itself. But I'm trying to find a technique on straightening antler and then actually making a full life handle out of it. So real quick, who, who taught you this craft? Was there any mentors that kind of helped you through it? Or was it like you were just reading a bunch of books, just trying to figure it out yourself, trial and error type thing? Well, I started with the Dale Clemens books, and I think he put out either three or four books. I've got every one of them. He was located in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and he also... Uh, created a group called Rod Crafters, which I've joined. Um, I wrote articles for him back in, I think it's 1978. I've got the articles for the magazine saved. And once a year, he would have a meeting in Allentown, and Rod Crafters would go there, different examples of their work, and then they would share the technique on how to duplicate what they had achieved. So, um, most of it's in a vacuum because there's no more rod crafters. Um, I know by now Dale had to have passed away, but uh, I can I consider him the godfather of rod making for all the books he's written and and all the knowledge he shared with people before he passed away. I love it, and it's kind of like a Facebook group or like a YouTube channel before they were even existed. You guys were doing it in person, kind of meeting. Type thing. Oh, yeah. That was the only way to do it. Or you could write an article for his magazine, Rock Drafters. And that's how we shared information about it. 
before the internet, but it's completely different now. You can go on tube or whatever and see different techniques. I love it. And uh, you mentioned Allentown, and uh, you know I'm from the area too, and I know you're from the area. One of the things I read on your website was that you started going to these shows, um, Philadelphia Fishing Show, and a couple other ones in the Philadelphia area, but majority of your business came from Florida. So I thought it was interesting yeah, it was, how the words. Yeah, it was word of mouth. Uh, one of the techniques that I did back then is I could always name it for it. And some of my customers moved down to Florida and it just caught on like crazy. Um, and I asked one customer, I said, you're down in Florida. You have to have plenty of rod makers. Why are you coming to me? And they said, well, for your work and for your price. Um, I don't charge by the hour. It's a labor of love. I mean, if I can say that I'm going to put 33 hours into a fishing rod and the parts cost me approximately $100 and I'm selling the rod for $800, you do the math. I mean, I don't charge by the hour. It's truly a labor of love. Right, absolutely. And I know my dad's had similar experience working in his wood shop, um, building different stuff for me, just like, tackle boxes and stuff to hold my musky lures all that and he's like he's gave a couple to my friends and, and he, i'm like dad you want to like charge him like a little bit for you <laughs> nope they can just have it i just like doing it and like to see it being used that's kind of like the whole thing so it's it's oh, a man i've i've had people come up and show and say oh i'd never use that rod and i'm like oh don't say that it's made to be used i mean <laughs> It's a boxy. People look at me like I'm I'm crazy, and I'm like, no, I use them all the time. I showed up on um, the FM tuna boat for some haddock fishing, and broke out with, with a couple fishing rods. Like you're actually going to use them? I'm like, yeah, that's what they're made for. So, by all means, use the rods. Yeah, I mean, you don't need the blend, but if I can make it lighter and more sensitive, the rest is up to you. Business owners and marketing professionals in the Philly area, Bad Rhino takes the overwhelm out of digital marketing. With tailored digital marketing services, from social media management to SEO and PPC advertising, our expert team navigates the complexities of the digital ad space for your business. Let Bad Rhino lead you to success. Visit badrhinoinc.com and let's take your business to new heights. Bad Rhino, we do digital marketing so you don't have to. Let's talk about your different rods that you make because you've got a whole list on your website, casting rods. Um, you got trolling rods, fly fishing rods, freshwater rods. I mean, the list goes on and on. What, um, what are people kind of reaching out for you for? Is it a lot of the fly fishermen that tie their own flies and they're like, you know what, I want a really nice fly rod or some bass guys coming to you for different stuff? Or what's kind of like your, your specialty there? Who's the people that are reaching out? I re when it comes to custom, you really don't have a specialty uh, because you're tailoring it for the customer, okay? So you're building from the ground up. This area, Pennsylvania, a lot of it is fly fishing for trout, um, nymph fishing, uh, four or five weight fly rods. Pack rods are extremely popular now. Um, and the weight boss on them is great when you compare the new blanks that are out on the market 
but it depends what area you go to. I've got rods in Vancouver, Canada, and they're talking 10-foot salmon rods for trolling. Uh, it really depends on the area, and I just don't cater to an area. Like I said, it's word of mouth. I'll get a call from California and say, make me a trout rod, and you don't want to make it to your expectations of what's here, okay? Um, you may have to turn around and say, well, what kind of banks are you fishing from? Is there overgrowth or trees behind you? Because that's going to affect the length and how you're casting it. So each area has its own idea of how they use a rod. You have to make it to, to fit their usage. That's what custom is. I love it. Yeah, just customize it to however the person can use the rod the best and what kind of fits them, right? It's kind of like a glove. You don't want to get by a glove that's too big or a glove that's too small. You want oh, yeah, without a doubt. But, well, even if you take that, I ask for a glove size, and people say, why? And if the grip is too thin, your hands want to cramp up on a long fight with a fish. If it's too fat, your hands want to tire. Okay, same thing with arm length. Well, what do you need no more? Well, if it's surf rod, I don't want to make it so long that when you do an overhead cast, it's hitting you in the gut. So I want to know your arm length, et cetera. And that's what true custom is. It's not making your average surf rod and duplicating the length on the handle each time. No, finish for the person. A six foot two person's gonna have a longer bite grip than a five eleven person only makes a difference. It's funny, you kinda of reminds you of uh, custom golf clubs too. As I know I got some taller buddies and when they play golf with normal clubs, it's like it's it's tough for them to hit the ball straight. Then they extend their clubs a little bit and all of a sudden they hit the ball straight. <laughs> Years ago, I took up golf, and I have an extremely slow swing. And I forget what it was. If it was a seven, then you were supposed to hit 150 yards. I wasn't even close to it. So believe it or not, I made my own graphite clubs. But what I did to cheat the system is I add an inch to each club left. And when I was done, my seven iron was hitting 150 yards on the spot. So here again, it's the same technique a lot of times when you're making golf clubs. You don't have the thread work involved. You can do it. I've woven people's names on putters. Uh, so you can do it. And here again, you're fitting it to your characteristics, whether it's a golf club, a pool stick, a, a rifle. It all comes into play on how you use the tool and how it's fitted for you. Absolutely. Let's let's talk about your pens a little bit, because like I said, I have one right here and I have another one at home. Um, so how did you kind of get into that? Because I believe you started with the custom rods first and then you went over yeah, right. and... I started with custom rods, and I wanted to make acrylic handles for the fishing rods. So I went off and researched it and found out, well, that's how they make paints. So I said, well, let me learn how to pour acrylic and make pens, because it's a hell of a lot cheaper to make a mistake on a pen than a fishing rod. So basically... I went off for a couple of years and 
learned how to make pens, and then applied the same technique fishing rod. And the same thing holds true with fishing rods and pens. So now, and we thread on pens and encase it in acrylic and turn and polish it on a lathe. So it sounds ridiculous, but it's a question I have at a lot of the shows. How'd you get into pens and fishing rods? Same tools, it's the same techniques, etc. And you can introduce what works in fishing rods into pens and do likewise from pens into fishing rods. Gotcha. And then if someone was reaching out to you for a fishing rod and a pen, would you be able to ship that to them? Or would you have to, like you said, kind of drive up to their different areas? Well, I'll drive up if I can for the simple reason I hate putting my work in the mail. Um, I lose sleep. Even though you bought the rod and it's your rod, I still consider it my rod, and I want to baby it. So I lose sleep whenever I mail uh, up the man, say, uh, from California. Um, I want a nine-weight fly rod, and I also want a fly fishing pen with the same handle material as you're using in the fly rod. I had one individual uh, where I make a butt cap with a fishing fly encased in acrylic and he contacted me and he said my dad had a favorite fly and he passed away he said can you put his fly in the butt cap of a fishing rod for me so he's always with me whenever i go fishing and sure i can do stuff like that um might take a little bit of time but yeah we can get stuff like that done and like i said it's it's special when you know that the rod means that much to an individual it's like okay i'll go the extra mile no problem it's it's just part of the passion Absolutely. No, that that's an awesome story. And I could definitely relate to that too. I mean, that's definitely something that means a lot to the people that are using it. And they always feel like you're kind of connected with those roots and family. So it's definitely, definitely pretty cool. Well, I had done a surf rod for an individual back in 75. And I'm going to, I'm going to say it's about four or five years ago, we passed away. And when I went to the viewing to go see him, because I knew the family, we both loved fishing. They gave me the surf rod back, and that's hanging in the shop on the wall. So I'm I'm not going to get into it. I get too emotional when I lose a friend. Um, And he was definitely a close friend for me. Uh, It's awesome, because every time you look at that rod, you're going to hit him yourself. That's uh, that's actually oh, really yeah. touching. I'm uh, definitely getting emotional over here, Tim. So and now you you have memories, and you gotta enjoy the memories. I mean, plenty of us go before us, but it's the memory that carries on the love for that person. Absolutely, absolutely, I love it. And um, so if anyone was reaching out to you for any custom work, of course, there's a whole process, um, that's involved with you getting the size they want and all the sheets that they gotta kind of fill out. Um, but in general, what's the price? I know you have a couple rods that are on the cheaper end and a couple rods that, you know, you can kind of go crazy with, with the pricing. Um, but just give everyone kind of like a ballpark of what, what they're kind of looking at when they're reaching out to you. 
If I'm talking a fresh water rod, I have what I call a budget rod, where it's top quality. Oh, don't go nuts with the thread work. It'll have an EVA grip, so I don't have to go nuts turning it, custom grip, etc. Uh, price point on that's about $130. From there, the, the sky's the limit, basically, unless you're all controlling, which you're going to easily hit two grand on a fishing rod. I'm going to say my average price point is about 350 to 450 on an average saltwater rod or a freshwater rod where I'm going crazy with the blade. Gotcha. Awesome. Awesome, George. Also, at the end of these podcasts, I like giving people the floor to kind of shout out um, any of their social medias, any websites, too, that they want um, in the description that I'll add in there. So I'll kind of let the floor be yours. Okay. Well, I'm on Facebook. I also have a website. Um, you can reach out to me or just pick up the phone. I mean, even if you're not sure, by all means, one of the big things is a lot of people buy gifts. And what I tell them is don't buy a rod and then give it as a gift. What they end up doing is they give them the two-page questionnaire as a gift. And then I work quickly with the buyer so that the person receiving the gift isn't aware of the price, okay? Um, so, and that, that seems to work out pretty popular, but this way, the person that's getting the gift gets the rod exactly as they want it. There's no second guessing where you bought the wrong style rod. It's too heavy. It's too light. It's not what they wanted. This way, they choose their own gift. Absolutely. I love it. Oh, one last question, too. Um, do you have a warranty policy, um, kind of, if you sell a rod? Like, what's that whole process kind of look like? Uh, some of my rods, believe it or not, actually carry a um, serial number from the manufacturer. So if they break the rod, the manufacturer will supply a new blank. I did have a brand new rod break, supposedly the first time out, and I basically ate it. I don't want anybody complaining that my rods will break. If you stay within the specs of the rod and you're not banging it around, dinging it on a boat because graphite is thin-walled, if you ding a graphite rod, you're de definitely going to damage it, whereas a fiberglass rod is thicker-walled and you can subject it to more abuse. Uh, but basically, people that are buying from me know how to take care of their equipment. I'll say. Um, any of the rods, the line has to break before the rod does. So in my questionnaire, I'll even ask, what type of line are you using? Um, and if somebody comes back and tells me braid, I'm going to basically say, put that on a scale. You'll be amazed at how much higher it breaks. So if a rod's weight rated for 30-pound test line, you're pushing it to the max by putting 30-pound braid on it because you're going to find out it's going to break over 40-pound test. Okay, so if you're interested in tournaments or records, you want to stay away from braid. You want to go to a, a good mono or a good fluorocarbon line. 
So you stay within the breaking limits of the rod. Mm -hmm. So the line kind of bends a little bit and you can kind of pull it a little bit. And I honestly, I, all I use is fluoro now. So yeah, that one. Yeah, I'm with that. So cool. George, I appreciate having you on here. Um, you know, I'll let you know when all this is recorded. I'll send it over to you. But uh, thanks, thanks for having on. Great. Great talk to you. You just listened to the Fishing Fanatics podcast with your host, Eric Stewart. Feel free to check out our other podcasts and our other interviews on our channel on Spotify, YouTube, and much more. Check out our Instagram page, TikTok, and Facebook as well. It was fun.